Isaiah chapter 42. Before we begin, I have a question for you. That is, when you were a kid, were you ever asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? I imagine most of us were asked this. So go ahead and ask the person next to you now, when you were a kid, how did you answer that question? What did you want to be when you grew up? If you're online, you can post the answer here as well into the Zoom chat. For myself, I loved animals. I had pictures of wild cats hanging all over my room. And the job that I wanted, the thing I wanted to do when I grew up was to be a zookeeper. Uh, later on, I wanted to be a park ranger. Uh, neither one of those things happened. But some, ch- some common childhood dreams include being a firefighter, being a police officer, uh, being a doctor, being an astronaut, being an athlete, being a president. Uh, All kinds of things we wish for when we grew up. Uh, But I'd like to know if anyone answered that question being a servant. Did anyone say when they were a child, when I grow up, I want to be a servant? That's not something most people aspire to or even think about doing that much. But there's one person who did. One person's entire life mission was to be a servant. And so today we are studying the first of four so-called servant songs in the book of Isaiah. We looked at the most famous one in Isaiah chapter 53 on Easter Sunday about the suffering servant. In the next two weeks, we'll be looking at two more of these. So who is the servant? How did he serve? What can we learn from him? These are some of the questions we'll be looking at today. Our text will be Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. And before we read that, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We are thankful for Jesus, who is our servant, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Lord, as we come into your word today, we pray that we will better understand the qualities of the Messiah, the servants. Lord, help us to uh, seek to emulate those qualities. Lord, we need to be more humble. We need to be more loving. We need to take more initiative, Lord, in order to serve those around us. We pray that you would develop in us a hunger to be like Christ, even when that means lowering ourselves and serving others. As we study your word today, we ask that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts to give us conviction, to help us to focus, to help us remember the words, and to give us the strength, Lord, to obey them. We put this time into your hands, and we pray your blessing on the rest of the service. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me share my screen with you. One moment. Let me get that up and going. Okay, so today the title of the message is The Lord's Chosen Servant from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. So let's go ahead and read that together. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. In a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. 
Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So today from this passage, we will look at three things about the servant. We will look at his identity, we will look at his character, and we will look at his mission. Verse 1, we see it says, Behold my servants, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. So this entire section is about the Lord's servant. But who is the servant? If you go back to Isaiah 41, it actually talks about Israel being the servant. They were called to be God's servant. They were called to be the messenger who would bring God's uh, words. Who He gave them his law. He, they would bring this to all of the nations as a light. And they would also were supposed to show the people what it would be like when a people obeyed God, when they worshiped Yahweh and when they followed him. God chose this nation to be his representatives to the rest of the earth. In chapter 41, verses 8 through 9, it says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. So Israel was to be the servant of the Lord. He had a task for them to teach others about God, to take the light of God to the gospel to the ends of the earth for all of the other nations to know him as they did. However, Israel did not do this task. For millions of Jews over thousands of years, they could not fulfill this. And so what we're going to see is that where the nation failed, the Messiah would not. God would choose one person from this nation, one Jew from this nation as his servant to fulfill this task that the nation as a whole did not and could not do. And so this is the servant who does his master's will. That servant is the Messiah. So Israel failed in this task. And of course, God knows all of that. He knows all of the future. He knows all of this. And from the beginning, he had the plan that he would use one person from Israel to fulfill this purpose for the entire nation. The servant is the Messiah. Now, the New Testament confirms this. In Acts chapter 8, Philip is talking with the Ethiopian and the man was studying one of the four servant songs. He was studying Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. And if you read Acts 8, Philip tells him that this servant in Isaiah 53 is Jesus the Messiah. Matthew also quotes the passage we are studying today in Matthew chapter 12, 15 through 21. We'll look at that a little bit in a moment. And he identifies Jesus as this servant in Isaiah 42 that Isaiah is writing about. So the servant is identified as Jesus. Now, Jesus could have taken any title. He could have come as a king. He could have come as a conqueror, but he chose to come as a servant. 
he lowered himself to become a man. And then he lowered himself even further to become a servant of men. And so Jesus is the ultimate servant. We see a number of things in his life that shows how he served others. Again and again in the Gospels, he says, I don't come to do my own will. I'm not doing my own thing. I'm not doing my own agenda. I'm coming to do the Father's will. And that's what a servant does, right? Is represent someone else. Jesus was representing his Father. He was representing the Lord. Jesus did not come to be served, but he came to serve. And again, Jesus is the Son of God. He came from heaven to this world. He had legions of angels at his command. He could have commanded others to serve him, to roll out the red carpet for him, but he didn't do this. He served all the people around him, those who didn't deserve it, uh, those who hated him, uh, those who opposed him. He served, and he served in many different ways. He served through teaching, and teaching was hard work, and he would teach thousands of people, crowd after crowd. And then after he was done teaching, they would come and ask questions and he would answer them. And then after he was done teaching the crowds, he would teach the disciples. And he spent a lot of his time healing. When people heard that he was a healer, they would bring all of their friends that they knew whom they were sick to Jesus for healing. And there would be sometimes lines of people waiting for him to heal them. He was so busy at some points healing and teaching, doing his ministry, that his family came over and he was so busy teaching, healing, he didn't have time to even eat lunch. And they thought he was kind of crazy. They thought he was losing his mind, that he's so busy serving these other people that he wasn't even eating by himself. And so he was very, very busy serving others. He didn't have a lot of me time, so to speak. He lowered himself, obviously, by washing the disciples' feet, which is perhaps one of the most visible aspects of how he served his people. They were the disciples. They were the students. They were the followers. But none of them were even volunteering to wash his feet. And yet he lowered himself to wash theirs. And he did all of these things with a good attitude. Never once did he complain. Never once did he have a grudge. Never once did he tell the disciples you know, and complain or whine about all of those who are using up all of his time and saying that he needs rest and all of these things. He didn't do that. He did it with a good attitude because that was his mission. That was why he came, was to serve. And of course, the biggest way that he served was by sacrificing his life for us. So again, it was Jesus's right to be served. And yet he didn't hold on to this right. He didn't claim this right for himself, but he gladly gave it up to show us an example of what humility and service look like. Now, if Jesus, who deserved to be served, and it was his right to be served, gave up this right, then how much more should we? Sometimes we think it's our right to be served. We certainly enjoy it when other people serve us, but it's not actually our right. Uh, at the very best, we're equal with others. And so 
we should serve. Jesus lowered himself from being the highest to being the lowest. We should lower ourselves as well. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the last emperor of China. His name was Pui, and he grew up with servants all around him. He was so lazy that it said that he never tied his own shoe. He didn't even brush his own teeth. Eventually, he was imprisoned by the new government, and life was very difficult for him because before he had servants do everything for him, and now he didn't have servants to do everything for him anymore. So he found this very difficult, uh, very difficult adjustment. But he did this because he could. He had servants, and so he required them to serve him. But God does not call us to live a life like that, even if we could do so. Mark 9.35, Jesus says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and he must be servant of all. Followers of Jesus are to be servants. What is a Christian? A Christian is a follower of Christ. That means that we are to do the things that he did. He served, so we should serve. This week I checked out the Pope's title, and it was much longer than I realized. His title is Bishop of Rome, Vicar of Jesus Christ, Successor of the Prince of the Apostles, Supreme Pontiff of the Universal Church, Primate of Italy, Archbishop and Metropolitan of the Roman Province, Sovereign of the State of the Vatican City, Servant of the Servants of God. That's a very long title, quite a mouthful. Uh, Jesus didn't take such a long title uh, for himself. I like the last part, servant. Servants, perhaps the rest of this is not totally necessary. Do we identify as a servant? This is what Jesus's core identity was. He did not take titles for himself in general. He called himself, yes, the son of man, which also was his identity being meek and humble before others. So we don't need to chase titles. We are called to serve. That means taking on a new mentality, looking for opportunities, being observant, taking initiative to look for the things that need to be done, even the tasks that others don't like to do, and then doing them. A servant lowers himself. He takes on the tasks that are unpopular. What are the unpopular tasks around you in your home or in your workplace? You know, emptying the trash or doing the laundry or cleaning the toilets. There are plenty of unattractive jobs. We are called to serve. We are called to serve our spouse. We are called to serve our children, our classmates, our neighbors. We are called to serve in the church. We are called to serve in the community. So let's consider if we're really following the example of Jesus, who is the ultimate servant. As we go on looking at the servant's identity, We see that he is chosen. Verse 1 says, My chosen in whom my soul delights. A servant subjects himself to someone else. The Messiah, Jesus, he did not take on this role for himself. He was appointed to it. He was chosen for this task and he willingly accepted it. In fact, this verse in Isaiah 42, 1 is alluded to at Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3 when a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. 
in whom my soul delights, Isaiah 42, with whom I'm well pleased, Matthew chapter 3. This statement was a divine allusion to Isaiah 42. And when God is saying, I'm well pleased with him, he's saying, look at Isaiah 42.1. This is the servant who my soul delights in. He is doing the task I've called him to do. Pay attention to him and don't miss this important truth. Unfortunately, many did. So the father chose the son for this role and Jesus submitted to it, which is what a servant does. God chooses his people to do the task that he calls them to do. Jesus was chosen for this role. What has he chosen for you to do? And are you doing it? A key aspect of the servant's identity is that he is filled with the spirit. Jesus did not go into ministry alone. Many Old Testament passages point to the fact that the spirit would be with him. We'll look at a couple of those in the coming weeks as well. Jesus himself quoted the Isaiah 61 passage about the spirit of the Lord being upon him. He quoted that and applied it to himself. He quoted it in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So it wasn't just other people who said that Jesus is this servant that Isaiah talked about. Jesus said, I am him. And he quoted this and he applied it to himself. So we see that Jesus had a deep and a personal connection with the Holy Spirit. He was Jesus's constant companion. And we see throughout Jesus's entire life, he and the Holy Spirit had a very close connection and Jesus ministered through the power of the Holy Spirit. We see that the Spirit was active at Jesus's birth. I would just quote a, a portion of these verses as we go through Jesus's life quickly to see his connection to the Spirit. If you like, you can write down those verses and read them fully later. But this was about Mary and the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. So the Holy Spirit was active at Jesus's birth from the very beginning. And he was active at Jesus's baptism. It says the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form, showing that the Spirit was blessing his ministry, that he was in him, that he was anointing him for the work that he was going to be doing. He was active in Jesus's ministry Luke chapter 4 says Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. This is after the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, gave him the strength to overcome the temptation. And now he, Jesus is coming out of the wilderness, ready, prepared to do the ministry, to do all of that service we were talking about, the teaching and the healing and all of these things. And he returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. So throughout Jesus' ministry, the Holy Spirit is there right alongside. The Spirit was also active at Jesus' death. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God? How does all of this work with the Trinity and what is each one doing? That's hard for us to figure out exactly right now. Uh, but it's very clear that the Holy Spirit was there with Jesus, and he was part of uh, empowering Jesus to make this sacrifice on the cross for our sins. It didn't end there. He was active at Jesus's resurrection. 
It says in Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. So here it says that the Holy Spirit was raising Jesus from the dead. He was active at every single part from birth through baptism, through ministry, into his death and into his resurrection. On this point, Mark Jones in his book, Knowing God, says, Any Christians wanting to know Jesus will inevitably find themselves faced with the fact that Jesus, from the time of his conception, had an inseparable companion, the eternal Holy Spirit. To know Jesus is to know the Holy Spirit and vice versa. Jesus and the Holy Spirit were constant and close companions. Now, the Holy Spirit also wants to be our companion. If you think about it, Jesus is 100% God. He has the power of God. He through his own divine power. And even he did these things through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we, again, don't know exactly how that works, but it appears that both of them, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, were involved in his miracles. And so Jesus gives us an example to follow. He told his disciples repeatedly, follow me. We're to follow not only his teachings, but his life and his example. And his life shows us how important it is for us to be filled with the Spirit. Jesus is divine. He created the galaxies. He created the universe. He created our solar system, our sun. He created all of these things. And he still highly valued a close and personal connection with the Holy Spirit. How much more do we need the Holy Spirit in our lives? Now, the Holy Spirit is with us and he desires to help us. Jesus says that we said that when he goes, he was sent a helper. And so that is one of the titles of the Holy Spirit is our helper. He wants to be involved in every aspect of our lives, our marriage, our job, our successes, our failures. When we face temptations or trials, he can help us with all of those things. So this year, our theme in GICF is to be renewed in Christ. If we want to be renewed in Christ, then it also comes through the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So let us pray to God and ask him to fill us with his spirit. So we have seen the servant's identity that the servant is the Messiah, that the servant is humble, that he is called to serve. When Israel filled this task, Jesus took this task onto himself. And we see that now we're going to be looking at the servant's character in verses 2 through 4. So I'll look at those verses. The first thing we'll see is that he is meek. And we see Isaiah 42, 2. He would not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Now, this does not mean that the Messiah would never raise his voice. Rather, it demonstrates a calm a gentle demeanor. He would not seek to gain fame through bluster or through brashness. He was not out to generate sound bites. Now, his attitude is in a very stark contrast with a lot of world leaders or politicians or media personalities, which we see today. Many seek to generate attention, uh, clicks and likes and popularity through 
you know, clickbaity things, right? And so they either say wild and crazy things to get your attention. If you go to YouTube, you can see many of the thumbnails, many of the titles are kind of wild and crazy and catch your attention and use all caps and crazy expressions and all of these things. Uh, my boys and I watched a political debate a few years ago, and we noticed that the the two people debating shared very few rational arguments during the whole two or three hours of the debate. Rather, there was a lot of yelling, a lot of interrupting, a lot of rudeness, and a lot of trying to get one-liners in to score, you know, political hit points on their opponents. And so at times it degenerated into a shouting match. Now, I think what this is saying is that Jesus is not like this. He's not trying to advertise himself. He's not gaining attention to himself through, you know, loudness or brashness like many do in the world. He is meek. Now, one of the examples of this is that oftentimes when Jesus healed people, what did he tell them? He told them, don't tell anyone. Now, that's a very strange thing. If in this world, if someone had the power of, of healing and they could heal people, normally speaking, they would say, tell everybody. Or they would put a video camera right there and they would do a show and they would say, see, look at this power and everybody, you know, come over. But Jesus oftentimes did the opposite, telling them, don't tell anyone. Keep this a secret. Can you imagine people doing that today? Now, actually, Matthew quoted this passage in Isaiah 42 in exactly this situation. Matthew 12, 15 says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed them, him, sorry. He healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then if you read the next verses, it's these exact verses we are studying right here today from Isaiah 42, which Matthew quotes. So Matthew is saying Jesus telling people not to tell others about his, the fact that he is healing them is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 42 2. Jesus was a servant. He wasn't out to glorify himself. In John 8 50, Jesus said, yet I do not seek my own glory. He did seek the glory of the one who sent him. He was all the time seeking the father's glory, not his own. And so Jesus was a true servant leader in every sense of what that means to be a servant leader. He was meek and he wasn't about himself and advertising himself. He was about representing the father. But we should not confuse his meekness with weakness. I've seen some nature documentaries before where there are, are powerful animals like lions and lions can take down large prey they are not weak at all. They're fierce and strong. And yet when they come to their own cubs, they can be very gentle, very nurturing, very caring, and gently carry their cubs from place to place. So Jesus was strong when he needed to be. He didn't back down. He didn't compromise with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. He taught with authority, and he used his strength to protect others not to protect himself. Now, again, there's an application for us. Jesus deserved glory. He deserved title. He deserved recognition. He deserved all of these things, but he didn't seek it for himself. Now, that's amazing that Jesus deserved glory and he didn't seek it. 
we don't deserve glory, and yet we often seek it for ourselves. And that's how twisted things often are, and that's how twisted sin makes us. So one application from this passage is that we need to regularly come before the Lord, ask him to make us humble. Think about the thing in your life, perhaps an achievement or a success that you would in your natural self tend to be more prideful about, more happy about this achievement in your life and the things that you do and ask God, help you be humble in this area, help you not seek your own glory. We need to make a habit of praying to him even before we do things, asking him to give us the right attitude and mentality of a humble servant. If you are preaching or speaking or teaching a Bible study, then beforehand pray because Satan wants to puff us up and give us a big ego about that. If you are performing something, whether you are singing a song in public or reading a poem in your school or you are going to join an athletic competition, Ask God before you begin to be humble and to not seek your own glory. This is very different from a lot of the athletes of our day. When they are successful, they will often, you know, pound their chests and they will bring glory and attention to themselves. Let us be humble and seek to use those opportunities. When we are successful, great, praise God. He's given us those talents. He's given us those abilities. But let's use those opportunities to give him the credit. I'm reminded of Eric Little, who was a very famous uh, Olympian gold medalist from Scotland. And he said that he ran for the glory of God. God made him fast and he wanted to run for God's glory. And through his running, he was a testimony and he shared the good news with many people who came to appreciate God gave him this gift and he wanted to use it for God. So if God's given us a gift in whatever field, whether music or athletics or language or any other field, let us use that. But let us actively think how to bring God glory in that situation. Now, the next thing that we see about Jesus is that he is compassionate. Isaiah 42, 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. I just think this is such a beautiful verse, which tells us Jesus' character as a servant. A bruised reed is a stalk of grain that it has been damaged. It's, as you see in the picture, mostly broken and out of shape. It looks like it's good for nothing. And without outside intervention, it will not uh, bear fruit. It will not bear grain. In a typical field, there would be many damaged stalks of grain. Perhaps they were damaged through rain or wind or someone or something stepping on them. But it's not very efficient to bother with them. If you were to tell a servant, uh, sorry, a farmer, Look in your field, there's some, you know, broken grain stalks. Go to repair them. The farmer would probably laugh and think, this is not worth my time. They're not worth it. It's too time consuming to deal with that. Just let it be. Imagine how much time a farmer would need to go and individually fix and nurture each one of these stalks of grain. He would tell you it's crazy to use his time like this. Now, faintly burning wicks are similar. These refer likely to oil lamp wicks. The oil has mostly been burned up. The wicks are about to go out. 
Uh, the easiest method is just snuff it out and replace it, uh, get a new lamp, add oil, but they can burn again. They need to be trimmed. Oil needs to be added. They can be reignited or the little flame that's remaining can be fanned to grow again. So what is this? What is the meaning of the bruised reed and of the smoldering wick? These refer to spiritually flawed and broken people. Now, perhaps they're wounded emotionally. Perhaps it's through moral failure and sin. Perhaps they are outcasts of society. There's something broken about them, something weak and fragile. They're the weak, the sick, and the sinner that Jesus said he came to minister to. And so when Jesus sees the the weak and the frail and the fragile. He doesn't see them as this person doesn't have value or they're not worth me spending time on, but he zones into those people and says, those are the people that I want to help. Those are people who have value and I want to nurture them. Now, this philosophy stands in very stark contrast with the world's philosophy. Now, the evolutionary model teaches survival of the fittest. This is the Darwinian model that most people, many people believe today, it's actually the foundation upon which the Nazis designed and developed the final solution. Many of the Nazi leaders who had the idea to, you know, kill all of the Jews and all those of supposedly weaker races were actually very strong believers in Darwinism. And they thought this was the natural consequence of it. Survival of the fittest. They sought to eradicate those that they deemed as weak. They believed that the strong should dominate and destroy those who couldn't defend themselves. But Jesus was not like this. He is compassionate. He loves, protects, and nurtures the weak. About the frail and damaged, Jesus believes that they have value. He believes that they can be redeemed. He believes that they need to be nurtured. And so he came to serve those people. Jesus said, I didn't come to heal the healthy. I came to heal the sick. That's who he spent his time on. Now, if you think about all of the frail and fragile and, and weak and sinful people that Jesus helped, there are many. Peter, who denied Jesus three times, he had witnessed all of Jesus's miracles and teaching and he still denied Jesus, but Jesus didn't cast him out. He instead talked with him, encouraged him and restored him to the right relationship with the Lord. Also the disciples, Jesus was showing them all the time the example of what it meant to be a servant. And yet sometimes they would argue about who is the greatest. And yet Jesus was patient with them. And he spent time to help them learn and grow. The woman at the well who had been married and divorced multiple times, uh, who was a social outcast, she was a Samaritan. And Jesus went and ministered to her and talked with her, had a conversation with her, and he even told her that he is the Messiah. Matthew and Zacchaeus, tax collectors who would have been looked down upon in their society, Jesus ministered to them. The woman who for 12 years was unclean with the hemorrhage and the blood and how, what a difficulty that must have been for her that 
especially in that society where according to the law, she was unclean and she couldn't even touch other people because of that. And Jesus healed her. And the woman caught in adultery. Everybody else wanted to stone her. And Jesus was merciful. And he said, go your way and sin no more. So when Jesus sees someone who has failed or is struggling, he doesn't cast that person out. He seeks to nurture and to heal. No one is too broken for him to fix. No one is too wounded for him to heal. No one is too sinful for him to forgive. And that's good news for us. When Jesus looks at you, he doesn't focus on your brokenness. He will not reject you, though some in the world might. He focuses not even on what you are, but on what you can become through him. Jesus took Simon and said, your name is Peter. Peter means rock. Well, Simon wasn't yet a rock, but Jesus saw what he could be, and he molded him and shaped him to become that. It's like a sculptor who sees a raw uh, rock or a piece of wood, something that others may reject, and yet he sees if I... If I mold it like this and if I cut this off, then I can shape it into that beautiful art that I want it to be. When Jesus looks at us, he looks at us like a sculptor. How to shape us to become more like the image of him. And so we should be thankful that we have a Lord who is so kind and who is so tender. We are all damaged goods, in fact, but he still welcomes us and he still heals us. And as we realize that, then I hope our love for him would also increase. So we've seen that Jesus is meek. He's compassionate. He is also just. He says he will faithfully bring forth justice. He would not grow faint or be discouraged. So he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So the Messiah would bring justice to the world in two primary ways. Uh, the first way, obviously, is the cross. When we see God cannot and does not just let sin go, according to his righteous character, sin has to be punished. So on the cross, Jesus took the sins of the world onto himself, satisfying God's demands for both justice and for love. So Jesus showed justice at the cross. But I think this also looks further to the cross because it talks about bringing it to the ends of the whole earth, even to the coastlands. And I believe this is likely a reference to the millennium. John 11, uh, Isaiah 11, three through six talks about this justice. And then it describes the millennial kingdom uh, because of time. We won't read all of those verses right now, uh, but I believe this passage is a reference to Jesus's righteous reign on this earth. This earth has been corrupted ever since the fall. Justice is perverted. Nations are ruled by sinful men over sinful men. And Jesus has brought justice in, in through the spiritual kingdom. And one day this justice will be brought to the whole earth. He is just. So we shouldn't mistake his meekness and his compassion for uh, tolerance of sin either. Just like he told the woman, go your way and sin no more. We also see that he is persevering. Isaiah 42, 4 says he will not grow faint or be discouraged. So he has established justice in the earth. So he has accomplished his mission. The Lord's servant will not give up. He will accomplish everything he sets out to do. Nothing and no one can thwart him. Now, many would try 
Jesus's earthly ministry was the focal point for Satan's opposition. Uh, we see that when he was tempted in the wilderness. We see it through many demons who are all around his ministry trying to create chaos and havoc. Uh, we see it through the religious leaders who opposed him, who tried to take him down through difficult questions, or they tried various times to kill him and finally did. These attacks were both physical and spiritual in nature, but Jesus was never phased. He kept right on. And so we see again and again in the Gospels, he says, my time is not yet come. And he was very laser focused on what his mission was. And then he went forward and accomplished it. So we can be reminded that when we are tired, sometimes of serving, we need to renew our strength in him. When Jesus was tired, what did he do? He withdrew by himself to the wilderness and he spent time with his father fellowshipping and he gained strength from him to continue in this ministry of service to others. So sometimes we will feel tired. Sometimes we won't feel like serving. Sometimes we would just want to lay in bed and ask others to serve us. What will we do during those times? We need to replenish our spiritual batteries spend time with the Lord and ask him to give us strength. So we've seen the servant's identity. We've seen his character. And the third thing we will look at is his mission. He is the new covenant. We see this in verse six and also in verse nine. It says, I will give you as a covenant for the peoples, a light for the nations. Verse 9, behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. So this talks about a covenant. A covenant is a promise, a contract between God and his people. There are many covenants in the Bible. The covenant given to Noah that God would not destroy the world by water again. Uh, the covenant to Moses, which came in the form of a law. The, the law, if you keep the law, then you'll be blessed. If you don't, then you'll be cursed. The Davidic covenant, which was a promise to David that your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel. The covenant to Abraham included God's promise to Abraham to increase his descendants, to make a nation from him and to give him the promised land. The first promise, uh, the covenantal promise we see in scripture is actually even before all of those in Genesis 3.15, it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so this is the very first hint in scripture that God planned to send a person to deal with the problem of sin, a descendant of Eve. And so we see that same promise here in Isaiah 42, 9, I will give you as a covenant. And notice carefully the term you refers to the servant, the Messiah. It doesn't say that he would bring a covenant perhaps an updated law, the wording shows that the servant is himself the covenant. He is that covenant. The father will give Christ to the world as his covenant. He is the promise. And so God the father sent Jesus to the world as our salvation. Simon alluded to this prophecy, sorry, Simeon, uh, when Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple when he was eight days old, 
they brought him and there was a old man there named Simeon who was a prophet and had had this revealed to him. And this is what he quoted about Jesus. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Again, alludes to this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 42. Simeon says, I have seen your salvation. Well, what did he see? He saw the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our salvation. He is the covenant. And we see in verse 9, it says, The former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. So it wasn't just Simeon or other people who observed that Jesus was the covenant. Jesus said this himself in Luke 22. He says, Likewise, the cup, after they'd eaten, saying, This cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I am the new covenant. And so the Mosaic law is part of the old set of things, the old wineskins. The law's purpose was to act as a mirror and it would point out people's sin and tell people you need help. You need help. You cannot solve the problem of sin on your own. And so that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament covenant perfectly. He obeyed every single command that was ever given in the Old Testament. He entered into the Holy of Holies on our behalf. Uh, You can read about that in Hebrews. He goes in between man and God as the mediator between the two. And then he brings us into a relationship with God based on his righteousness. So Jesus identified himself as the new covenant. And what does that mean? What is the point of saying the covenant is a person, not a system? It's saying that rituals and sacrifices and laws and systems and rules cannot bring you to God which is actually what people all across the world are trying to do. They're trying to approach God through their own merit by following a set of rules or rituals. These things cannot bring us to God, but a person could. Jesus could. Jesus' death and resurrection can. And that's why Jesus said, John 14, 6, he said, not doing something is the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot come to the Father except through Me. He is the way. So what's the application? Well, it's very simple. We need to turn to Jesus, not to religion. Being a Christian is not about adhering to a certain set of biblical rules. It is about being a follower of the person, Jesus Christ. So ask yourself, if you have turned to the person of Jesus Christ, if you have placed your faith in him, and if you are following him, So his mission, he is the new covenant. And he is also an emancipator. He sets people free. Verses six through seven, he says, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This is the servant's mission. And notice it's not just a mission to the Jews. Though Jesus was Jewish, it says a light for the nations. It's for all peoples. And He is setting us free from spiritual captivity. Again, Jesus claimed that he is doing these things in the book of John. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the world is filled with 
blind guides, people who claim to know the answers. If you walk into a large bookstore, uh, for example, in some Western countries at least, then you'll find a, a lot of books, thousands and thousands of books, all the knowledge of men, so to speak. And in some of these uh, sections, there are self-help books, uh, self-help books about marriage, about raising children, about uh, achieving success in your job, and all kinds of different things about self-help. But these answer books uh, oftentimes contradict each other. One expert says, you need to do this for your marriage, and another expert says, no, don't ever do that. Do this other thing. And so there's different opinions, and there's different ideas. Many of the authors are what Jesus called blind guides, people who have not yet had their eyes opened. And it doesn't mean that they can never be right. But Jesus is saying, I am the light. Follow me. I will show you the way to go. I will set you free and I will help you in all of these areas. He is the authority. He has the answers. And that's a big claim. Yet Jesus backed it up. He backed it up when he healed a blind man who could never see and gave him physical eyesight. And he did this several times. And so these miracles showed he is who he claims to be. If he can give physical sight, he can give spiritual sight. Second Corinthians 4.4 4 talks about the God of this age. And his goal is to blind people. It says in Second Corinthians 4.4 4, that he's blinded the minds of those who don't believe. So spiritual captivity seeks to enslave. There's sin, there's addiction, there's deception, all works of the enemy to try to keep people in bondage. And you can see it in many aspects of society today. Many people would rather believe that aliens created life on earth than that God did. So a lot of prominent evolutionists are starting to say it's aliens because they recognize that life cannot come about through random chance. There must be an intelligent designer, but rather than turning to God, they're turning to aliens. This is a powerful, blinding force that is keeping people from seeking the Lord. Jesus is the one who can open our eyes. He is the one who can set us free. The light of Christ shows us what the real problem is. The real problem is not someone or something else. The problem is in ourself. It is our sin. We are in chains to it without him. We cannot break free from this on our own. So this is the mission that Jesus came for, to break free these chains of sin, to take off the blinders so that we can look at ourselves and we can look at the world through the right perspective. We can understand truth. We can understand purpose. We can understand the meaning of life. And we can know the next step that we need to take. He comes to set us free. If you're in any kind of sinful habit or addiction and come to Christ because he can set you free. That is what he came for. So this is the servant's mission. Uh, today we have seen the servant's identity. He is the Messiah. We have seen the servant's character. He is meek. He is compassionate. He is a servant. He is loving, caring, nurturing, tender. He is also just. And we see his mission that he is the covenant and that he 
comes to make a way for us to come to God, and he comes to set us free from the power of sin, death, and temptation. So what are the applications for us today? I would like to end with two simple applications. The first one is an invitation to come to him. Are you perhaps bruised and hurting? Come to Jesus. He welcomes you. He wants to nurture you. He is tender and he is the one who can truly heal. So rather than turning to some person in this world, let us turn to Jesus and look at Jesus' Jesus's invitation that he gives. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a wonderful invitation to come to him. And the second is, as we come to him, we see what he is like. He is a servant. He is compassionate. He is meek. And he calls us to love and to serve as he did. Now, I remember at some point in the past, I saw a few clips of an American old TV series called America's Funniest Home Videos. Now, many of these videos showed clips of people getting hurt, falling into pits, running into poles, falling off of their bicycles or various other accidents. And then the crowd would erupt into laughter. And I never understood why is this funny? It doesn't seem funny at all. We shouldn't be laughing at others' misfortune. When people are weak or struggling or embarrassed, let's not laugh as the world does. Let's see how we can help. God calls us not to treat others like the world does. Let's treat them how Jesus did. So when someone is embarrassed, let's come alongside and encourage them. When someone falls, let's be the first to pick them up. If someone is being bullied, let's step in and say something rather than standing on the sidelines. When someone is struggling in their walk with the Lord, let's not judge that person, but let's befriend them, let's pray with them, and let's help them overcome through the power of Christ. When someone is lost and without the gospel, they are weak, they need the Lord. Let us preach the gospel to them. That is the most loving thing that we can do. Jesus lowered himself so low to become our servants. We are followers of Jesus. Let us lower ourselves to serve as he did. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we so much, we thank you so much for the example of Jesus who lowered himself to be our servant. We acknowledge that we totally don't deserve this. We deserve to be judged and convicted and punished, but yet you still loved us and you seek to nurture us and restore us to yourself. And Lord, we need that not just once at salvation, but so many times during our life. And so Lord, today we come to you and we ask that you would heal us. We ask for any in the congregation who are uh, struggling with various things, who are feeling weak, either spiritually or emotionally or physically. We pray that today they would come to Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them, that you would renew their strength and help them to fly as eagles, Lord. We pray that you would help us to look at the example of Jesus, his servanthood and his humility, and that you would make us to be like that. That when we look at others, we would have servant hearts and we would look to consider how we can use 
whatever gift or skill or opportunity you've given us for serving others and building out your church. We pray that in the rest of today, even in lighthouses, we would be doing this. We would be looking for ways to serve. Lord, make us humble and help us to be completely dependent on you. Please fill us with the Holy Spirit and strengthen us for the task you have for us in the coming week. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.